Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, We are beginning a new series today, uh, a series called Why Did Jesus Say? And we're going to be looking at some uh, passages in this series that are traditionally known as the hard sayings of Jesus. Uh, We are a church that, uh, I think I said during the announcement of the series last week, we're a, a church that doesn't skip the hard stuff. Well, this series is going to be all hard stuff, and uh, so we're, we're really looking forward to it. But I want you to understand why we're doing this series. It's certainly not uh, because James and I love torturing ourselves with hard passages from the Bible, um, and it's not for novelty. Rather, our, our goal is kind of threefold. Uh, first, man, maybe, maybe you've been reading your Bible. That'd be great. Um, and you've come across some difficult passages, and you're like, yeah, I don't know what that means, or that doesn't sound like Jesus. That's weird or, or whatever. Or you've heard some strange interpretation and maybe during this series, some of these uh, passages we'll, we'll work through. will help you work through them for yourselves uh, in, in your own mind. Uh, we also hope to, as we go through this series, provide some good tools of hermeneutics or uh, principles of Bible interpretation uh, for you so that, man, uh, uh, whatever James and I say up here, you don't just drink it in. You can read it for yourself and interpret it for yourself and make sound judgment on the scripture for yourself and uh, keep uh, some sound principles like that keep us from falling into unhealthy, unbiblical, and just wrong ideas uh, as we read. And hopefully we can gain uh, some of those tools or dust off some of those tools if you already have them uh, during this series. And it'll provide uh, some good help for you. But most importantly, we hope that by looking at these hard sayings of Jesus, you will be able to see the person of Jesus more fully in a more robust uh, way. And that is our, our, ultimately, our, our ultimate goal. Uh, so today we're going to be jumping in both feet, uh, or with both feet. There's a, a passage that we're going to be looking at, actually two passages that we're going to be looking at today. And they have several tricky things in them. Uh, but this passage reminds me of a scene uh, from the Chronicles of Nar- Narnia series. Um, because it's going to expand, I hope, our view of Jesus. There's a scene in that series. Well, back, let's back up. You may remember, if you've read or watched the movies, uh, there's a character in there named Aslan, who C.S. Lewis uses in a metaphorical way to teach some uh, or illustrate some attributes of Jesus. And uh, the youngest uh, character in the books is named Lucy. And she goes away from Narnia for a long time, and she comes back, and she sees Aslan, And she tells him that he's bigger than she remembers. And he replies to her that it's not that he has grown, but that she has. And he says that every year you grow, you'll see me bigger. And so is true with our view of Jesus. He is God, so he doesn't get more powerful or anything like that. But as we grow in our relationship with him, we come to see him more fully as he truly is. And we hope that in our series, we'll be able to do just that um, with our views of Jesus. Author Michael Kelly says in his book, The Tough Sayings of Jesus, which I would recommend, 
He says this, if you grew up going to church, your understanding of Jesus may have been built with macaroni art and felt board stories. The pictures you saw of him had portrayed a generous man with a welcoming smile full of love and compassion. You were probably taught that Jesus loved us and wanted to live inside of us. In this way, many of us began our relationship with him. For some reason, though, the relationship stayed within the confines of that scenario. The relationship did not grow as we grew. Our knowledge of him remained very simple, while our lives became increasingly complex. For those of us, it's very possible that this trimmed-down version of the Son of God has been bursting at the seams to escape the small understanding our minds and hearts have created for Him. And so in our, our two texts today, and hopefully you'll be able to see why we have two, uh, we want to expand our view of Jesus. The first of our texts is in Luke chapter 12. You can go ahead and turn there in your Bible. Um, we're going to be looking at verses 49 through 53. And when you get there, you're going to read where Jesus, the Prince of Peace, meek and mild, says that he did not come to bring peace, but division upon the earth. In fact, he says that he came to set the whole thing on fire. Is this really Jesus? Yes. And let's turn to, to look, look at what he says. Now, Luke chapter 12, 49 to 53. Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and now, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on the earth? No. I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. There will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. What did we just read? Is that, was that Jesus? Uh, as, as that author I mentioned, Michael Kelly, points out, this sounds more like Alexander the Great or Genghis Khan, doesn't it? Maybe, maybe we should just ignore this passage and, and, and move on. I mean, Jesus couldn't have really said that. Um, or if, if he did say it, it certainly can't help us understand who he really is in today's time now. Or maybe, just maybe, there's some things about Jesus that we've lost sight of or haven't noticed before. Some things about Jesus that we don't know or need to be reminded of. Maybe there's some aspects of Jesus that are very warlike. Uh, but before we explore that, unless we be out of balance, I, I want us to remember that Jesus is indeed the Prince of Peace. Uh, listen to Jesus' words himself in Mark chapter 9, verse 50. He says, Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. John chapter 14, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And then in chapter 16 of John, he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And we just finished a series in the book of Acts where we, if, if you kind of remember, uh, listened to the apostles preach a lot and they preached peace. 
Peter says in Acts chapter 10, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Christ, uh, through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. All right, so Jesus is indeed the Prince of Peace. This is Jesus, our healer, our savior, uh, the one who is love just as much as the Father is love and who proved his love for us by dying on a cross in our place so that we can be reconciled with the Father. Yet here is Jesus saying he came to set fire on the earth and wishes that it was already burning. He came to bring division. What are we to make of it? Why did Jesus say that? I think that's a good question. We hope to to answer that today. Um, A key to proper biblical interpretation is to let the Bible be your reference for the most clear interpretation of itself. Let me come up on the screen. Let Scripture interpret scripture. This is the first thing uh, uh, biblical biblical interpretation uh, sort of axiom or rule of thumb that I want us to to learn today. Let scripture interpret scripture. That is, when you uh, are reading a passage, let that passage um, be interpreted by other passages in the Bible that talk about the same thing or related things, right? If you come to a passage, I don't, that doesn't make sense. Let me see what, the, what else the Bible has to say about it. It'll help make more sense. If it doesn't make sense with the rest of the Bible, then you've probably got the wrong sense, right? So let Scripture interpret Scripture. And we can know without any doubt that one place in the Word of God is not going to contradict another place in the Word of God because ultimately, as the author of the Bible, God does not contradict God. Right? God, God doesn't contradict Himself. And so we can use uh, his word to interpret what he's saying in a given passage. And we'll use this principle multiple times today and throughout our study. In fact, you may have noticed that we, it's something we try to do every week in here where, when we're uh, digging in the Bible together and in our uh, midweek Bible studies when those start back up in the fall, by the way. Keep that in your mind. Uh, so let's turn to another place in the record of Jesus' life where he actually expands on the concept that we just read in Luke 12. It's kind of confusing. Doesn't sound a lot like Jesus. Why would Jesus say such a thing? Well, let's look at what else Jesus says. Um, and he's not in the crowd anymore. He's with his followers, his disciples, and he expounds on this idea a little bit. We get a little more clarity from Jesus. In Matthew 10, you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Jesus is going to give marching orders to his disciples. And the context is very much like a general or a military leader who is about to send his troops out into battle. It's intense. It is unabashedly realistic about what they're going to face when they go out into the world in his name. And ultimately, it's designed to help them fight well. It's designed to help them fight well. Matthew 10, let's look at 16 through 23 first. We're going to work our way down uh, through this passage. Jesus says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father his children, 
and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now this passage gives us another key in proper biblical interpretation, and that is that context is king. Context is king. Uh, Colton, you thought you were, you were king. Context, context is king, right? Context is king. And the context is the surrounding situation, the setting, the audience to whom these words are spoken. That's the context. And in this context, Jesus is, uh, Jesus is commissioning his disciples. This is his commissioning sermon. Uh, again, he sounds very much like a commanding officer sending his troops out in the battle. If you're a, a movie person, this is like William Wallace in Braveheart, right? They can take our land. You're right. I won't, I won't finish the whole thing. Uh, but, but that's what this is like, you know? Jesus is, is sending them out. Jesus is saying that a war is what lays ahead for the disciples. And it's a war that's going to be costly. It's a war that's going to bring great division and hatred and even violence to the apostles. He's telling them the cost that they will indeed have to pay for carrying on the mission that he is sending them out on. This is not speculation on Jesus' part, by the way. Jesus doesn't speculate about anything. He knows what his disciples are going to encounter when they go out into the world, and he loves his disciples. And so he's trying to prepare his disciples helping them count the cost uh, for what goes out. So what lies ahead? Division lies ahead. Look back at uh, verses 21 and 22. Brother will, be, will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated, for, you, uh, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. So let's let the context speak. Let verse 22 that we just read inform the things that preceded it. Jesus is not saying that the disciples should go out and hate people. Did you catch that? He said, you will be hated by all people for my name's sake. He didn't say you go out and be a jerk, right? Uh, he said, you will be hated. He specifically said is that as they go out, people will hate them because those people hate Jesus and the message of Jesus. He says, you will be hated for my name's sake. Those people don't want to hear the gospel. That's why they will reject you. That's why they will divide among you. Uh, they will be divided against or shunned or hated for Jesus' name's sake. Now, hopefully we can begin to see how this parallels Luke chapter 12, right? Jesus says, I, came to bring, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring division. He said, there's going to be in a house... There's going to be two against three and three against two. And we just read in, in Matthew chapter 10, father's going to deliver their son over to death, right? And, and the son's going to, going to rat out their dad. Hey, my, my dad's converted to Christianity. You know, Gestapo, come get them. That, that, sort, of, that sort of thing. Um, that's the context. So given the great, um, I mean, consider it back in their time, there, there was great emphasis, emphasis on harmony of the family in the, in the Judaic culture. And Jesus' words here would have, would have hit him right in the heart, man. Like, you're the family will be divided because of Jesus. Father against son, 
and daughter against mother and, and those sorts of things. So um, an observing Jew coming home and saying, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus now. I think he's the Messiah. I think he's God in the flesh. That, that person may as well be prepared to be disowned by their family, right? It would, they would have considered it a blasphemous thing, a shameful thing uh, for them to be saying. Um, that Jesus is the Messiah and God in the flesh was the same message that the Jewish religious leaders had handed over to Jesus to the Romans to be executed because of, right? And now these people were going into the same culture saying, hey, we're followers of Jesus. That brings, that brings division for those who don't want to hear it, who don't want to follow Jesus. So Jesus, in a nutshell, is saying that those he is sending out to carry on his mission will be hated and shunned because of him. That's what he's talking about with the division. Continue with me in Matthew chapter 10. Uh, look at verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, that's the prince of demons, how much more will they malign those of his household? You may remember in Scripture where they called Jesus this very thing. He casts out demons because he's the chief of demons. Um, you know, in other parts of the world, even today, places like Syria, China, Nigeria, many Christians live under threat of imprisonment and in some places even death because they are followers of Jesus. Christians today, even living in the very place where Jesus said these words, Christians from Jewish families or Muslim families or atheist families stand to lose everyone they love if they profess Jesus as their Lord. Even here in the U.S., if someone, say, in a Mormon family converts to biblical Christianity, then they have a high likelihood of being shunned by their own family. Maybe some of you have experienced some shunning as you've come to Jesus, from maybe even in your own family or among friends who once treated you like family. Now that you're all Jesus-y, they don't want you around so much anymore. Maybe even if they would identify as Christian, they feel that way, you know. Um, you're a little, you're a little too Jesusy for uh, for us. We we'd prefer not to invite you to family gatherings or, or certain things. Um, maybe you've experienced that sort of shunning as well. But I want to pause and and just reemphasize something I mentioned in passing earlier. We are not the ones to be bringing the hostility. We're not the ones. And when other people bring that against us because of our loyalty to Jesus and his message, we need to remember that their hostility is not with us ultimately. Their hostility is with Jesus and his message. Um, you know, something occurred to me. I was going over my message with Kelly, bless her heart. She has to hear this thing twice every week. She hears it first. And, uh, she gives great feedback. But something that occurred to me when we were talking about it, um, it's actually Jesus' offer of peace with God that brings hostility. Isn't that weird? Think about that for a minute. Jesus' message is, I'm the Messiah. You can be made right with God through what I did for you. And they hung him on a cross for it. And we shun him for it. And we shun people who bring that message to our hearts. It's very strange that Jesus' offer of peace with God would bring hostility. Shouldn't we want peace with God? If we are hostile toward that message, 
That says something about the intents of our hearts that I preached about a few weeks ago, right? That, that says something that's on the inside of us. Jesus is offering us peace with God. But for those who either consciously or subconsciously want to be their own kings, there can be no peace with God. And so they are against God and against his message of peace and reconciliation through Jesus. And they're against those who carry that message. But uh, again, let's make sure we're really careful here. If you see hostility and division as you go out as a disciple of Jesus, make mental note right here, right now. If you begin to see hostility, your first inclination should be to look inward and say, is it my fault? Am I doing something to be offensive to them? Is it, is it my fault? Because if your approach is mean-spirited or condescending or something like that, hear me. You could be um, effectively acting as a barrier to that uh, between Jesus and that person as opposed to a bridge, right? If, if, you're, if you're saying, hey, Jesus loves you, but I'm acting in a way that I hate you, right? Or I'm condescending to you, or I'm a jerk to you, or I don't practice what I preach, then we can become barriers rather than bridges between people and Jesus. Rather than being ambassadors opening doors, an unhealthy approach can create a barrier and you are essentially um, preventing that person from seeing Jesus who he, as who he really is. All they can see is you, right? Um, so, listen, uh, the gospel's offensive enough. Do you guys know that the gospel's offensive? It's offensive. It says, we are wicked at heart and in desperate need of forgiveness and reconciliation with God. Nobody likes to hear that. Everybody likes to think, I'm a pretty good person, especially compared to this person and that person, right? Um, it says that there are not a thousand different ways to God. It says there aren't ten ways. It says there's one way. His name is Jesus. That's offensive. It says that there, the only way to come to Jesus is via surrender. <laughs> surrender your attempts to achieve righteousness on your own because, hello, maybe you've realized that's impossible. This is offensive. You know, especially in our uber-sensitive, self-righteous day and time. Yet it's that offense, that offense of the gospel, um, that helps people see themselves for who they are. It helps them see Jesus for who He is, and then that way they can embrace the Savior and be reconciled to God. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's a heavy tool, man. It hits right at the, the kernel of your soul. It's, it's heavy, so wield it lightly. Let the gospel do the work. Don't be, oh, that, I didn't realize I was going to rhyme. Don't be a jerk. Let the gospel do the work, right? A. We get snaps like a, like a spoken word. Okay, whatever, moving on. My point is, let the gospel be the offense, not you and not me. I didn't have Boaz put it in our slides, but let me encourage you, maybe... Write that down or burn it in your soul. Dear God, please help me live in such a way that the gospel is the offense, not me. Right? When Jesus talks, he's trying to help his disciples endure this division and persecution and all these things that are coming. What will it take to endure? Jesus says, absolute allegiance. Let's pick up in uh, verse 26. He says, so have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. 
and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. First, Jesus shows that God the Father is trustworthy and will hold us and will give us the power to endure. Even the worst times, he sees us and he is with us on the journey. So we shouldn't be afraid or dismayed, Jesus. It reminds me of the time when the disciples were uh, in the storm in the boat with Jesus. Jesus was with them, sleeping, <laughs> right? Why, why, are you guys, why are you guys tripping, man? I, I'm in the boat, you know? Jesus is, is with them. He's in the storm, and he's the master over the storm. They, the winds and the waves obey his voice and command. Now, in Jesus' loving and infinite wisdom, he may choose to stop the storm and spare you from it. Or he may choose to let the storm rage and hold you in it and be with you in it. It reminds me of the old 80s Christian song. Sometimes he calms the storm and sometimes he calms his child in the storm. But either way, his presence is with us. We should be assured that we can endure because Jesus is faithful, right? And he endures. Um, well, in our text, after assuring his disciples of his presence, Jesus then turns to them and talks to them about their allegiance and says it must be with him. Let's pick up in verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. We'll return in just a minute to how amazing that, that sentence is. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. Here we go again, right? But now we've got some context. Do not think that I came, that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Hard sayings from Jesus. But let's pause and let the context speak here again. And let Scripture interpret Scripture. First note, Jesus is not saying, hate your parents. He's not saying that. No, Jesus believes the Ten Commandments, right? Jesus believes that you should honor your father and mother, that your day should be long upon the earth. Jesus believes that. He is not saying, hate your parents and go... Um, he's not even saying, hate your in-laws, right? He's not saying that. Jesus believes the Ten Commandments. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. Jesus tells us exactly what he means in verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me. He's not saying you should. He's saying that you should, you should love and cherish your family. Again, he believes the Ten Commandments. Uh, he's ultimately the author. <laughs> uh, but you should love Jesus so much more comparatively in contrast to that it should look like hate 
right? Jesus is, is drawing a, a metaphor here of light and dark. He's very plainly telling us um, that we should love him more. Now, like I said, Jesus is painting a high contrast picture, though, and he is drawing also a line in the sand. He's saying there, there can be no divided loyalty, no divided allegiance. He's very plainly saying that he alone deserves our ultimate allegiance. So, if people reject us because we are, listen to these descriptors, truthfully and humbly and lovingly following Jesus, then so be it. So be it. Be it friends, family, government, culture, co-workers, boss, teammates. If they force me to choose between them and Jesus, it's got to be Jesus. It's got to be Jesus. That sounds very extreme, I know. But again, we aren't the ones who are against God enforcing the choice. We're not. Um, I want us to close by paying close attention to the words of Jesus at the end of our uh, text today. Verse 39, he says, Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's the big takeaway today. That's the big takeaway. What's the point that Jesus is driving home about this journey with him, about this mission that he is sending his disciples on? He's saying it will not be easy, but it'll be worth it. It'll be worth it. All the hurt, all the hard choices, all the self-denial out of obedience to Jesus, all the scorn of not going with the spirit of the age or the uh, cultural flow, it will be worth it, Jesus says. Why? Because when we place Jesus above all else, that's when we truly find our life. What does he mean by that? He's saying, this is what you were made for, man. Like I said last week, you're not only missing the mark, you're missing out. You were designed for life with Jesus. And until you experience life with Jesus, you are not experienced life as God intends it for you. You're just not. You're missing out. You're, you're living in black and white. He wants you to live in color with Jesus. Every human being is created for that. It is the key to life and living. It is the key to deep, unfading uh, joy, even in times of sorrow. It comes to, uh, it's the key to contentment in times when, when we don't know what the future holds or we, we can't make sense of our past and we feel disoriented in the present. We can sit knowing that Jesus is ours and we are His. We're made for that, man. It's the only place where, Jesus is the only place where that is available. It's both available now, right here, right now, as we walk in this difficult world, and it's available forever with Him. Because we'll be made, when He makes all things new, we'll be made new too. Uh, so how do we get that kind of life, man? Well, we give our lives to the author of life Himself. Jesus, look back at verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. That is the good news. That's the gospel, man. The Apostle Paul echoed this sentiment in Romans 10, 9. He says, if we confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord, acknowledge him before men, right? And believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. We'll be saved from our sin. 
Jesus says in Scripture, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You will be saved. And because Jesus uh, will, you'll be saved because Jesus will acknowledge you before the Father. What does that mean? It means that when you stand before God, rather than having to stand there and be bare in your sin, which is an offense to God, the slightest one single sin is an offense to holy, righteous God, and He cannot allow it in His presence. That, that's what it will look like if we stand there on our own merit. But Jesus says, I will acknowledge you before my Father. That is Jesus saying, they are here on my merit, not their own. They're here on my merit. They are with me, Jesus will be able to say. And the Father will be able to righteously and legally say, enter in. Because Jesus is a good and faithful servant. And you're with him. Right? That, that's everlasting. Do you see why we call it the good news? Um, you don't have to flip there, but I want to reference back to Luke chapter 12 where we began. Um, Luke chapter 12, 49 to 50. Jesus said, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. There's some debate about what Jesus meant about casting fire on the earth. Some interpret it um, as his bringing final judgment. And um, whether that's what he's talking about right here or not, that's a 100% future fact. Jesus, the Savior of the world, will be the judge of the world. And um, only those who have given their lives to him will be counted innocent. Only those will be acknowledged by Jesus before the Father, right? So um, he, he, Jesus is the only way, and that's a future fact, and he will indeed be judged. But on this particular verse where Jesus is talking about bringing fire upon the earth, I agree with other commentators that this language of Jesus bringing fire could be a reference to the gift of the Holy Spirit, uh, that he gives to all who are his. Remember, John the Baptist said uh, in Matthew 3, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So soon after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, we know that after he ascended to heaven, he would indeed send the Holy Spirit upon his disciples and to those who are around viewing it, the Holy Spirit appeared upon them as flames of fire. And it's that same Holy Spirit who would carry and indwell and empower Jesus' disciples on their mission. So Jesus says he is eager to send him. He wished the fire was already kindled. Then Jesus says in verse 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Now scholars are unanimous on this one about what Jesus' baptism is. Jesus is talking about the mocking, the torture, the crucifixion he was about to face. And now, it has been accomplished. Jesus' work is finished. The righteous judgment of God no longer needs to rest upon us. It doesn't have to, at least. If we hand our lives to Jesus, trusting in Him alone to save us, then our salvation is accomplished too. Amen?